So we're back in Luke today. Took a little break. Uh, and this is a new section. I love this section. I love this passage. It's a great passage to start off a new year. I was looking forward to doing so, and we suspended for our, uh, our Advent series. So we're beginning a new section in Luke. Um, it's unique to Luke among the Gospels. Uh, people call it the journey to Jerusalem or the travel narrative. And it's this long section. It goes from chapter 9, verse 51, all the way to about 1928 or 1944, however you look at it. You know, Jesus' triumphal entry, his weeping over Jerusalem and entrance into the temple. So you have this long section of, of 10 chapters around this theme of Jesus journeying and traveling and walking in Jesus' way, it's a section that drills down on discipleship, walking the, the footsteps, learning to perceive the world through the eyes of Christ, which is discipleship. To see the world as Jesus sees the world. And so, that's one of the main reasons Luke structures it as a journey, because you and I are on a journey. We're on a journey with Jesus, walking with him. And it's a journey of discipleship. And so Jesus' journey is anything but straight and direct. And that's why it gets confusing, because we want to plot a course and see it go from one place to another, straight line towards Jerusalem, and yet it's a windy path. Um, oftentimes we don't know where he is because it's really not Luke's point. He just wants the overall context of a journey. Sometimes he changes direction. In, in 1038, for example, he's in the home of Mary and Martha in Bethany, two miles from Jerusalem. But then back in 1711, he's all the way up north in the border of Galilee and Samaria. He's wandering around, but always with an eye towards Jerusalem. And I think that's important because the Christian life is anything but a straight, direct path. And any of you who've lived any length of years can often look over your life and say, I didn't see any of that coming. I could not have traced that out. And it's a windy path, a long and windy road. That's what it is. But it's in Jesus' way, and I think he's wanting us to know that. And along those lines, we encounter sections that aren't necessarily chronological, they're more topical theological, because Luke is presenting this pathway of discipleship and he's gathering these themes together that he really wants to impress upon you. He wants you to internalize them, learn them deeply, to live well as a disciple of Christ uh, in route to glory. He had a definite period of time for his 12 disciples, and he immerses here in a big way. So one commentator asks, and we dealt with this back in November, as you remember, and uh, he asked this, with Jesus' transfiguration, you remember how important the transfiguration was, we, we hit this high point of revelation. I mean, can you get any higher than the transfiguration? 
And so he's revealed everything his disciples need to know about himself. They've confessed their faith in him. So why this long meandering trek to Jerusalem? Why 10 more chapters? Why another year of ministry? Why not just get there already, reach your goal, go to the cross, accomplish redemption? Why wait? And the answer, if you recall in chapter nine, beginning about in verse 37, is the disciples just aren't listening. They're just not getting it. Even after the transfiguration, when the father breaks in and says, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And you have four vignettes after that statement that show they're not listening. The first is they come down from the mountain and they can't heal this demon-possessed boy. And it's that they're just not depending on Jesus. Jesus is exasperated and says, how, how long am I gonna be here with this unfaithful generation? It's mainly you disciples. Like, why won't you believe? And then, you, so you have unbelief. And then the next section is Jesus foretells his death again. And, and it says, Jesus looks at him and says, may it sink into your heads that I'm going to be delivered up but they can't understand, it's concealed from them, they don't ask about it, because really they don't wanna know about it, they just don't wanna know about the cross. And then you have two sections where one is they're arguing about who's the greatest, right? Their own pride in their inner circle, and then they argue about somebody else that's having more success than they are driving out demons, but it's not in their company, and they say, well, he can't do that. And it's pride with respect to somebody who's not in their immediate circle. So you have all this stuff going on, and it's because they're not listening that Jesus goes, okay, we're taking a journey together. It's 10 chapters, it's gonna take a year because you really need to know my heart better. We don't have much time. And there's a shift that's made. Prior to this, Jesus' deeds are center stage because he's proven to them that I'm the redeemer that you need. From here on out, it's Jesus' sayings and teachings and parables. And you know, Luke, some of the most precious, heartwarming parables in the Bible are from here on out. And he does that to pull their hearts closer to him, that they would see the world like he sees the world. So let's read Luke 9, 51. Such a good section. Hear God's word. Great section to start a new year with. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And to another he said, follow me. But he said, 
Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. But Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The grass withers, flowers fall, this word endures forever. It's a, it's a pretty intense word. It's undergirded, saturated with God's grace for you today too. So I, I got three points first. Jesus's heart and commitment, then the disciples' heart, and then the disciples' commitment. So Jesus's heart and commitment, 951, I love that verse. It's a powerful verse when it says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And it's more literally, when we're being fulfilled, the days of his taking up. You get that word fulfill there. It refers to God's plan for him. That was the plan. He agreed to the plan. It's a plan to redeem his people. When the time was being fulfilled, in God's plan, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He's fulfilling that time, fulfilling the completion of his earthly ministry. It's time to set his mind to the goal. And that taking up is just a riveting word because, you know, normally Jesus predicts his suffering, his betrayal, his death. Here he calls it his taking up. It's a word that normally means ascension. That time when Jesus is enthroned in glory, having accomplished the work. It's got to be included in the meaning and yet also behind it is also his death. Extra biblical literature refers to it in the terms of death, a taking up. But you know, if you look in the Old Testament, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, Elijah, if you recall, and Elijah stands behind a lot of our passage today, and really the whole travel narrative, Elijah was taken up in a whirlwind, you remember. Jesus is speaking in those terms. So you've got this idea that Jesus is fulfilling his earthly ministry. He's got the cross in his crosshairs. And he knows that through that cross, he's gonna accomplish the work, and be resurrected and ascend to glory and do the work to redeem his people. So because of all this, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And if you recall Isaiah 50 verse seven, the suffering servant sets his face like flint and is not gonna be turned. He got this idea that Jesus fixes his mind, reshuffles, resolves himself, determines to get the job done and finish the work. Nothing, there's, there's no flinching, there's no wavering, no indecision, no giving up, no contemplating, throwing in the towel. He's gonna do it. He's fully and wholeheartedly committed to the goal of his cross and through that, his crown. 
And so when I read this phrase, I think of when I was a junior high student in youth group and a visiting person came and gave his testimony. You know, sometimes that really makes a huge impression on you. And this player was a Mississippi State football player and he played defensive line. And he talked to us, you know, sometimes God's spirit just moves and he was talking about how grueling two-a-days were. And I was just reliving, like what must two-a-days be like at a big college in August? And he didn't think he was gonna make it and he, he just admitted that. He sat there, he got knocked over or something. He goes, I don't know if I'm gonna stick it out. But this especially hot, humid day, just killer practice, he thought he was about to die and things weren't going his way. And he says, I came to this point where I resolved something. I resolved, I am not going to hurt anymore. Like nothing's gonna change my mind. I'm digging down deep, I'm pushing through and I will play and I will start. And he said, after I made that resolve, everything changed. And so I think of Jesus right here. And he's like, he's in the tunnel, he's heading for the field. He's got, he knows where he's going. He's on the, the last stretch and it is gonna be difficult. But he's saying, nothing's gonna stop me. I am going and nothing is gonna block my path. And what must that say about Jesus' attitude? What must that say about Jesus' heart for you? So you see this heart that's dead set on mercy on showing you mercy. He'll push through anything to save you. No amount of pain is gonna stop in his way. Uh, John MacArthur, great definition of mercy. It's condescending love reaching out to meet the need of someone without thought of their merit or demerit, whether they deserve it or not. Like, I'm gonna meet your need. And so we see ourselves in the unbelief and the closed-mindedness and the pride of the disciples, you know? And we don't deserve it, but Jesus is saying, look, right, and that's why I'm going. Like, I'm gonna run even faster to the cross because you need it. It's this heart of mercy, this overwhelming mercy for his people. And, and along with that, there's this dead set commitment like he's going to accomplish it. I'm not gonna get distracted, diverted, dissuaded, or defeated. I am determined to follow through and do what has to be done to wash you clean of your sins. And that's the kind of savior we have, this heart of mercy, this mindset of commitment. And that's the gospel. Like that just lifts our hearts in praise. And within that also, it means that disciples of Jesus start reflecting this. We follow in his way. We start expressing this heart of mercy and this mindset of commitment. And so that leads to the next point. The disciple's heart, the disciple's heart, the disciple's heart needs to be like Jesus' heart. And so Jesus' way is the way of our heart coming to look more like his. So MacArthur says, another wonderful quote, he goes, never are you more like God than when you are merciful. So you look in even Luke, you know, 
Zechariah sings about the coming of a redeemer, talks about the tender mercies of our God, the bedrock motive for why a redeemer comes. And Jesus speaks in Luke 6, you know, be merciful even as your heavenly father is merciful. That that's the attribute highlighted and lifted up to think about. Well, Jesus is traveling with the disciples from Galilee in the north down south to Jerusalem. So they're going north to south to Jerusalem. And the direct route passes, as you know, through Samaria. And so he at least has his 12, but he may have a wider group of disciples. And so they fear they're going to overrun this Samaritan village as they enter that area. So he sends messengers ahead of him so they can get accommodations ready. He's not going to preach. He's going just for food and lodging. But, but even back here, we have Elijah in the background. Malachi 3.1 says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare your way. You got this Old Testament counterpart. Well, the messengers come back to Jesus, and they report that the village refuses to receive you. Like, you are not welcome. They do not want you in their village. And the reason for that is because your face is set to go to Jerusalem. Little do they know how important it is that Jesus' face be set to go to Jerusalem. But you see, behind this, there's this long-standing feud, as you know, between Jews and Samaritans. It goes back centuries, at least till the, since the eighth century. You remember the northern kingdom fell and the Assyrians, they brought Gentiles from another place into this area. They intermarried, so they're a mixed race. They took on other religious customs, so their religion got mixed up. They built their own temple. Second century, a Jewish reformer came through and destroyed it. I mean, there's just this antagonism such that when Jewish people would travel north to south and pass through Samaria, it would inflame their anger. And they'd sometimes act out in violence and even murder to Jewish pilgrims going to the feasts. So because of this, this bitterness and prejudice that the Samaritans had for the Jews, the Jews for the Samaritans, many preferred just to bypass Samaria altogether, not deal with it, even though it lengthened their journey. They'd just take a long loop around. However, Jesus, Jesus is different. He chooses to pass right through Samaria, the Samaritan village. He, he purposefully, with his disciples, on this road of discipleship, he's challenging their bitterness and their prejudice, like making them deal with it. And he's extending to the Samaritans mercy. He wants them to get a feel for him. He's done that earlier, remember, in John 4. The woman at the well, wonderful fruit at that Samaritan village. Nevertheless, on this occasion, this deep-seated prejudice of the town just erupts and they reject outright Jesus. You know, in one sense, it shows us that people rejected Jesus for a host of different reasons. It also shows that the way of Jesus to Jerusalem is the way of rejection. Rejection's coming. This is nothing compared to what he will have to face. So, so this happens. Jesus gets rejected, I mean, you know, uh, scorned. 
put down here. So the question is, how will a disciple respond? How does a disciple respond to rejection? To seeing Jesus rejected. And so James and John rush to Jesus' defense and they go, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Isn't that what we should do? Don't you want to give us the permission and the power to destroy them once and for all, to judge once and for all this whole village in fire? Like, let's do away with it. Wipe it out. Clean slate. Off the map. And so if we look favorably, they have a zeal for Jesus' honor. They have a zeal for truth. If we look in the Old Testament, Elijah did this. Do you remember in 2 Kings 1, that evil king sends 50 soldiers to Elijah, and Elijah calls down fire on those 50 soldiers. He does it again, he does it again. Two times until the third guy in humility says, please don't destroy me in fire. But there's something wrong here. Like, of all Old Testament precedent to look to, why do James and John select this one? And how is it the way to honor someone who's committed to going to Jerusalem to die for sinners and take fire himself, why would it honor him to send fire on a village for their sin? And there was so much time with Jesus, how have they not seen God doing something different in Jesus' ministry than what he was doing in Elijah's ministry? I mean, they saw the Samaritan woman in the village. He does things differently, as John would say in his gospel, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order the world might be saved through him. It's the day of grace. Today is the day of salvation. It's not the day for condemnation. They, they haven't taken that in somehow. And notice, it's his inner circle. It's his best friend who will become the disciple whom Jesus loved, who miss it, who missed the heart of Jesus entirely. He couldn't miss it more. And, and you know how it is, how an occasion triggers your flesh. You didn't know it was down there and it just comes out. You put in a situation, you react instinctively and like pride and bitterness and anger and resentment boiled up, stored up, just leaps out. And you just blast people with your words or your thoughts. And they do that here. In a way, it's almost necessary they do that to see what's down in there so Jesus can deal with it with them. Far from calling down fire, Jesus is on a mission to take fire. And he couldn't miss it worse. Next week we're gonna see that when a town rejected the disciples on their mission trip, Jesus said, shake the dust of your foot off against the town. It's a serious warning, but it's a warning of grace to repent, repent, please. It's not immediate annihilation that the disciples wanted. They missed his heart. We can go after truth, but truth can get distorted if it's not linked to mercy. If it's not linked to mercy, it becomes hard and cold and arrogant. 
So Jesus rebukes them straight out, clear. I wonder what he said. He rebukes them and they simply go to another village. On the one hand, the village missed an opportunity. But Jesus graciously gives them more time. Acts 8 is coming. There's gonna be a Samaritan mission. John will be a part of that, preaching throughout Samaria. And maybe this brought them to conviction. But you think of John here, and you think of all John's letters and revelation as gospel, and one of the most precious things about scripture is when you see the growth of a soul, and you see it in John. He's the, he's the disciple who speaks of love. The heart. Well, how about the commitment? The disciples' commitment. We've seen Jesus' commitment to, see his fa- to set his face to Jerusalem as unflinching. Uh, even though he knows it's gonna cost him everything, and this will mean that those who are united to such a redeemer will follow the way of the cross. And Jesus is gonna teach us in this section what the cross entails. But right at the outset, we see this radical nature of Jesus' call to follow him. He interacts with three would-be followers and highlights to us that discipleship has to be our chief priority. And nothing can take its place. It, it, it will be costly. It, will, it must be urgent and it must be constant. Costly, urgent, and constant. And so first, uh, Jesus and his disciples are heading to Jerusalem. This guy calls out, I will follow you wherever you go. I mean, that just sounds wonderful. It, wherever you go. But Jesus knows what that means. He's not an armchair rabbi that's going to teach in a comfortable synagogue. He's a teacher heading to Jerusalem of all places and a cross is before him. So Jesus warns this guy, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And and that's to say in some ways the beast of the field got it better than I do. Like, I'm in an itinerant ministry, and by definition, I'm homeless. Even more, I'm the ultimate stranger in exile. I will be rejected. You just need to know what you're signing up for. I'm not at home here. I'm a misfit here. You need to know that you will not be comfortable. You just won't be comfortable. It's going to be costly. Don't sign up. Don't. Don't. It's, gonna, it's not gonna be comfortable. And then this, he's passing along, and okay, this section, second and third, those these are tough ones for me, really. And I kinda don't want them in scripture in a way. And you gotta make uh, some interpretation that they're strong statements to get your attention, and they're specific to Jesus physically walking around. But nevertheless, the principle holds. So the second is, Jesus sees this guy and calls him, follow me, but the man responds, Lord, let me go bury my father. And that's so reasonable. Like, let the guy bury his dad. And so, you know, that's a huge priority in our culture. In that culture, even higher, like, The the rabbis would say, you don't have to worship, you don't have to circumcise your child, you don't have to celebrate the Passover, go bury your father. Like, it's scandalous if you don't. It's a non-negotiable. It's a custom that 
Everything stops, the world stops, you do that. No, no questions, you, you do that. It takes precedence over any other obligation. It's so important, a religious duty. You got to do it. And yet Jesus shocks everybody. It just kind of imagine when people looked at him. Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Like he doesn't deny that that's a fundamental responsibility. His point is that to proclaim the kingdom of God right now is as great as that one is, this is such a greater priority to even eclipse that greatest priority that you have in your culture. Like as, as significant and non-negotiable as that is, this is even that much more. It supersedes anything, uh, all other good, noble customs that you have. And the phrase is idiomatic. It's like he, he's now in the realm of the dead. You focus on the living. Let other arrangements be made. You have higher, more pressing responsibilities. Again, there's a moment here. Jesus is walking out of town, but the principle holds. Is there any significant, non-negotiable custom that we have that gets in the way of our utmost necessity and urgency to proclaim the kingdom of God? I mean, it's a probing thing. It, it's, a, it's a good thing that gets in the way of the urgency that we are to have in the day of salvation to proclaim the kingdom of God. Then the third, another guy calls out, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at home. So reasonable. Like, just let the guy say farewell. And we could say a lot of things here, but you know, Elijah, when he calls Elisha, he lets him go say farewell. So why won't Jesus let this guy go home and say farewell? Jesus responds to him, he goes, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And so he's contrasting his day with Elijah's day. And he's warning everybody to know that as significant as Elijah's time was, my time is even more significant. It's an epical time. It's to be seized and made good use of. It's even a greater priority for you to follow me right now and not take the time to say farewell. And his response to him about the... No one puts his hand to the plow and looks back as fit for the kingdom of God is just saying... Look, in that culture, you can't plow a straight row by, while looking behind you in those rocky soil, you're gonna get off kilter. And he's saying, look, what family convictions, conventions and courtesies are in your life that, 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 that bend your path of discipleship that cause you to look back? It's a constant path. It's not intermittent, it's constant. And the principle holds for us today too, we need those cautions, I need those cautions. What comforts, what customs, what conventions control our hearts more than Christ? And so I appreciate how one commentator says, look, ordinarily it's all fine. I mean, God roots us in families, roots us in our jobs, roots us in our communities. That's where we influence, that's where we grow. But sometimes there's a tension and we know it 
And sometimes there's a decision to be made, and we know it. Sometimes we feel that we're being more conformed than we are following Christ, and we need to adjust. And he's saying, at that point, what are you gonna do? Will it be clear to all that we're following Christ first? Will he be our non-negotiable? Even when it shockingly, scandalizingly goes against custom, comfort, and convention. Will we make excuses and rationalize and postpone and compromise even when it sounds reasonable or will we really hear Jesus say, follow me right now, right now? And so I look at this too and I have this other question really fast, but how does all this square with the doctrine that we hold so precious that salvation is a gift, that we're saved by grace through faith as a gift, not by our works, not by our aggressive discipleship, but it's given to us. Does it contradict? Is there a small print here? And absolutely not. The whole deal is that Jesus doesn't ask us to do anything that he is not right then already doing. Like he's done all these requirements. He set his face to go to Jerusalem even though his family didn't understand it. But even more than that, he goes to Jerusalem to pay for our failures in discipleship. It's his record. It's his death covering your failures. And he gives you discipleship as a gift. In, in the eyes of God, you've done all this. But now he's saying faith in Christ joins you to Jesus. And he's like this. Practice being like this. Head my direction in Jesus' path. And the surprising thing is that the way of the cross is the way we're made. That joy, satisfaction, fulfillment is met, found in laying our lives down. Service, sacrifice, that's how we're made. Hebrews 12 says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, both now and later. And it's the same for you. Joy is found there. Your happiness is found there. Even though you can't, we can't believe it sometimes. And so we rejoice today that our Savior set his heart to go to Jerusalem, come what may, knowing the cost, He has a heart of mercy for you and he's committed to it. And we rejoice today that he brings you along his way. And he bit by bit trains us in what it means to flourish as a child of God. May we start this year with a renewed conviction of that. May God add his blessing. Amen. Let's stand.